I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today, I'm talking with a fellow I've known for quite a number of years. His name is Adam Strauss, and he is a actor and a stand-up comic, And he has this show that he's put on called The Mushroom Cure, which I've seen. I saw it a few years ago. It's an amazing show about basically trying to uh, treat his own OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, with psychedelics, in particular psilocybic mushrooms. Now, I mean, this show isn't just some little thing. I mean, I mean, Adam has performed this show in uh, the United Kingdom and in the U.S. It's gotten played at festivals. It's played in Edinburgh. It's played off Broadway in New York. It's played at the Marsh Theater in Berkeley. It's gotten fantastic reviews across the board. I mean, it's been called a miracle of a show and a must see, a hilarious ride through OCD, a fabulous perceptive trip. Usually intelligent, outstanding revelation, and Adam's been described as an extremely talented comedian and a tour de force. So it's just a real pleasure, Adam, to have you on Psychoactive. 
Thanks for having me, Ethan, and thanks for that intro. I feel like we should end the podcast right now because I'm not going to be able to top that. I should just <laughs> go out on a high note, no pun intended. Uh, uh-huh. but thanks, thanks for having me on this uh, on your podcast. I've always enjoyed our unrecorded talk, so looking forward to this one as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I should also just say to the audience, there's this uh, recording that plays before each show that says, you know, nothing you hear should be taken to be encouraging to use drugs. And, you know, here, because we're going to be talking about drugs and mental illness and comedy, I just want to apologize to some listeners in advance. If we sound irreverent, uh, either Adam or me, because I'll get into the comedic mode with him, perhaps, um, it's not meant to be disrespectful. It's not meant to be insensitive. So, it, but it is meant to hopefully shed light on OCD and the potential of psychedelics and also to really learn about Adam's story here. So please forgive both him and me uh, if something hits you wrong. But I do want to start off by offering, I I don't know, Adam, have you ever had that issue where people got upset by what you were doing um, with your comedy and OCD? You know, I would say not people who have actually seen the show, but I, but there have been, there has sometimes been pushback in general. I, I would say more from the people who feel that psychedelics have a special, uh, reverential place in the in the pharmacopoeia uh, which I don't actually disagree with I do feel like they're unique compounds and and have a unique role and that the idea of of bringing humor to them is in some way inherently disrespectful but yeah that's yeah. something I push back strongly on partially because I think well my own psychedelic experiences humor and laughter is such a central part of them even just to be very specific, I mean, the way I, I've laughed on mushrooms particularly, and, and Sasha Shulgin talks about it in T call this tryptamine laugh. It does seem to be a fairly intimate, um, and I think personally a non-trivial connection between psychedelics and laughter. To me, one of the one of the many powerful things about laughter is there's something humbling about it. When you're laughing, you're basically there's an element of surprise, something you didn't see coming. And I don't think it's too far uh, a reach to say that there is, in the best jokes, there's sort of a mind-expanding element where you see a possibility or a connection that you didn't previously see. And it's that, that snap moment of recognition and connection that elicits the laugh. And that, yeah. to me, also describes a lot of the psychedelic experiences is that, you know, with a joke, you have all the components there, right? You're not necessarily being exposed to anything totally novel in terms of uh, I'm trying to think of a classic joke, you know, a joke, let's say a, a cliche joke about, you know, airplane food sucking. So you, you, you know, the concept of airplanes, you know, the concept of food, but somehow it's presented in a way where you're seeing something new that you hadn't seen before. And so much of the psychedelic experience for me is often that it's okay. I had all the pieces, but they're coming together in a way that I'd never seen before. And that can be uh, revelatory. And I think there can be a, a, a small revelation in a joke, in, in a punchline. Before we get into you know, how you conceive the play and how it's evolved, I'm curious in terms of your own personal life. I mean, at what age do you, do your parents realize that you have this condition? And what was it like either growing up with it or whatever age it really became a you know, significant issue in your life? It's interesting because it seems like people with OCD fall into one of two camps. Some people will say, yep, I've had this from my early memories. I was born with OCD. But for many people, there are 
clear precursors, meaning anxiety, often perfectionism, things like that, that were problematic for them, but they didn't develop clear-cut OCD until they had a specific inciting incident, a trauma, essentially. And I fell into that latter camp. I was from a very, very early age, you know, a lot of really, really intense emotional volatility. I would get into these huge fights with my mom. I, my emotions were out of control and I didn't know how to control them. And I saw therapists from an early age. And to me, one of the great shortcomings of traditional Western psychotherapy is it's really a mind game. It's a brain trying to help another brain, by which I mean I would see these therapists from an early age and they would, we would discuss, you know, why would I get so upset? Why would I get so angry? Why would I get so out of control? And I would think about it and I would talk about it. No one ever actually told me, you know, what's going on in your body? What's happening at a, at a visceral level? When a therapist would ask me how I was feeling, I would think about it. I wouldn't actually tune in to my physical sensations. And that's where psychedelics were instrumental, but I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of my story. So... Yeah, really, really intense, um, just overpowering anxiety, fear a lot of the time for a very early age. No obvious reason, no obvious trauma. Grew up in a, a loving, supportive household, but that was just there from the beginning. And and really, I didn't have any tools um, to to work with it. And so it was it defined my life in a lot of ways, just this this sort of omnipresent, not quite omnipresent. It, I wasn't always anxious, but a lot of the time there was, uh, yeah, just this overpowering fear and nothing really helped. Just to give a sense of the, uh, the, the scope of my challenges, I was hospitalized uh, twice, both at age 18. That was when I had um, my first girlfriend dump me. And, you know, I was admitted to the hospital ostensibly for suicidality, but I, I wasn't suicidal. I just couldn't handle how I was feeling and I didn't know what to do. I, I just couldn't, almost literally, I couldn't be in my own skin. It was just too agonizing. And Adam, were you getting all sorts of diagnoses and being prescribed all sorts of pharmaceuticals as an adolescent? So I'm 47. So you know, the advent of Prozac, I think that came out in 1988. I feel like if I was 10 years younger, I probably would have been prescribed a lot of these psychotropic medications, but it wasn't particularly common. Having said that, I was. I was prescribed some at age, I think, 15 or 16. I was prescribed an antidepressant, a tricyclic antidepressant. I don't remember the name, but one of the, uh, the earlier antidepressants before SSRIs. And then at 18, I was prescribed Prozac. Um, was on it for about a month and had a bad reaction and got off. And then beginning at 19 uh, or so, I was on uh, Paxil. And that began my my long-term relationship with SSRIs. But st staying with the timeline, so diagnoses, you know, generally I, the diagnosis was depression, but that was just sort of a catch-all diagnosis. One of the challenges with OCD is even among therapists, um, it's often misdiagnosed or, or underdiagnosed because certainly some people with OCD have the classic, you know, contamination fear, hand washing or checking the stove. And I think most therapists will catch that, but there's so many different forms OCD can assume because at its root, OCD is basically a strategy, I would say, an unconscious strategy, but a strategy to eliminate uncertainty because uncertainty makes us anxious and that can assume so many different uh, forms. So, Probably the 
the most appropriate diagnosis when I was growing up would have been something like generalized anxiety disorder. But what the fuck does that mean? I mean, it's a lot of these diagnoses. I have, I have a lot of uh, critiques of sort of the Western psychotherapeutic model. And one of them is this idea that there's these discrete diagnostic categories that have like real predictive or, or therapeutic value. And I, I just, I think in many cases, that's not true. So so yeah, short short answer, capsule answer was I was diagnosed with depression, but I certainly was not depressed. For me, it was really about fear, just this deep fear. And uh, yeah, and the SSRI started at age 18. By 19, I was on Paxil, and I was on Paxil for many years. Then I switched over to Lexapro, um, and I tried a number mm. of other SSRIs. I want to be careful here. The data on SSRIs is certainly for some people, they are very, very helpful, and I always tell people, if SSRIs are working for you, use them. But for many people with OCD, the best data, uh, and there's not great data because there's no real incentive for uh, pharmaceutical companies to do long-term studies of SSRIs. You just need to do an eight-week trial to get FDA approval, uh, multiple eight-week trials. But the point is, you know, there's no, there's no financial benefit for people to do long-term studies financed by the drug companies. So there haven't been that many, but the ones that there have been some public health studies show that in general, about half of people with OCD just don't respond to SSRIs. And the half who do respond typically see only about a 25% reduction in symptoms. So for the vast majority of people with OCD, SSRIs don't work or they give at best a, a moderate degree of relief. And that was, that was my story. You know, maybe they helped mm -hmm. a little bit lowering some anxiety, but I was still sick in a word and and getting sicker and that is also characteristic of ocd is it does tend to be a progressive condition in the sense of um well let me put it this way i've never met someone with ocd who's had a spontaneous remission with the exception of it seems like sometimes children with ocd they kind of just grow out of it but i've never met an adult who said yeah you know i had I had bad OCD, and then it just kind of got better. On the contrary, everyone I've met, if you're not treating it, if you're not working with it, um, and I use that, that uh, was a preposition with, uh, intentionally working with, because I think, and we can get into this, a lot of my path towards freedom has been not trying to fight the OCD, not trying to beat the OCD, but working with it. But if you're not, if you're not doing things actively to address the OCD, it I think pretty much invariably will just take up more and more of your life. And that, mm -hmm. was, that was my story, even though I was doing things. I was on SSRIs. I was in therapy, but it just wasn't, um, wasn't that effective. And, and sorry, I, I, I want to clarify just one thing. I'd mentioned, so I still wouldn't have said I had OCD you know, in my 20s, but the general anxiety was getting worse and worse. And then the OCD came about when I had, um, well, in a word, a heartbreak, uh, maybe that's two words, I'm not sure, but, but the most significant romantic mm -hmm. relationship of my life ended. And I actually didn't make this connection um, until I started doing the show, The Mushroom Cure, and kind of started writing about it. But in hindsight, it's very clear this relationship ended. And the simplest way I could put it is there was this profound heartbreak, there was this profound loss but I wasn't able or willing to feel that loss in my body. I wasn't, again, I didn't have the tools to really feel those feelings. And so what I did 
is I really left my body entirely. I went entirely into my head. I was already very much in my head. But now in the aftermath of this uh, loss of this relationship, I really, really just just went entirely into my head and, and developed this strategy, in a sense, a logical, but ultimately, a, a, I'd say a literally insane strategy, which is, well, if I can figure everything out in my head, if I can get everything right, if I can always get the right answer, then my life will be good and I won't have to feel these feelings. Again, I wasn't totally conscious of this, but that's that's the way it, uh, it but, came but into Adam, play. It sounds, it sounds like what you're describing is this, you're living with this generalized anxiety, depression, a heartbreak, and then it all sort of kind of blossoms or transforms in or starts to manifest as OCD. And I'm wondering, when it does manifest as OCD, do some of the other symptoms you had before, like, for example, depression or anxiety, do those subside a bit and get replaced by the OCD, or do they all just become a great big jumble? Uh, how, how does it all kind of fit or not fit together or interact, or is there was there any silver lining in OCD vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the experiences you had suffered from before? So I wouldn't say I was ever depressed. Um, I think of depression as kind of this, you know, retreat, drawing into oneself, you know, not wanting to get out of bed. And I, I had some symptoms secondary to the anxiety. When the anxiety was really bad, sure, I wouldn't want to get out of bed. But I'd never say I was truly depressed, knowing people who really do suffer from clinical depression. It's, um, it's I think, a pretty distinct condition. But the anxiety... That really got wrapped up in the OCD. And in fact, I, well, OCD is considered an anxiety disorder. And I think that's apt in, I look at OCD at, in one sense as an attempt to eliminate anxiety that works in the very, 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 very short term. So let's take the example of someone who has contamination fear. They're afraid that they're going to get AIDS because they touched a subway pole. And they know logically it's not going to happen, but that fear is there. And so they wash their hands for the 40th time and they feel a little bit of relief. Maybe for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, their anxiety goes down for a little bit, but then it comes back. So logically, they'll do the thing that gave them relief the last time. They'll watch, they'll wash again. So there is a payoff sometimes with engaging in OCD, but it's very short-lived and it actually ultimately increases anxiety because the harder you try to eliminate this perceived threat, this fear that you're contaminated in, I don't have that form, but to use this example, two things happen. One, you're giving that threat, that fear, more and more energy, more and more attention. So it's getting bigger and bigger. The second thing, though, that happens is you're actually adding a second source of anxiety, which is real, uh, grounded in real life, which is, all right, you spent four hours in the bathroom washing your hands. Well, guess what? Now you're, you might get fired from your job because you're not doing your job or, you know, your spouse may leave you because they can't handle this anymore. So now there's real things happening in the world as a result of you trying to eliminate this fear that are actually creating more fear. And this is the really cruel, vicious cycle of OCD. Well, what are you going to do now? You're going to do the thing that sometimes makes you feel a little bit better, even if it's only for 15 or 20 seconds. You're going to keep washing. And that kind of comes back to why I would say OCD tends to be a progressive condition that gets worse because the more you do OCD, the harder it is to stop. And so for me, the anxiety was sort of this initially the fuel for OCD, but it's sort of like this perpetual motion machine where the more fuel you give it, the more it creates further fuel for OCD. So it just mm -hmm. it, it ramped up the anxiety and yeah, the noose just tightened.
So, Adam, so step into the parallel track now. So this is about living with OCD, but you at the same time, you are living. I mean, you're having a life. I presume you're going to school, you're going to college, you're getting a job. Maybe you're deciding to that maybe you're going to go into comedy. What's that part of your life like? I mean, not, not to make them two separate tracks, but the other parts of your life. And, and, and how's that going? Yeah, well, actually, I like looking at it as two tracks because that's what it felt for me. So I did have sort of this OCD track which was really the dominant story of my life, but then increasingly um, difficult. I, but I was trying to maintain outward appearances and it, it was challenging. So yeah, I was, you know, as the OCD was really flourishing after this relationship ended, I was, um, I, I was a founder of a company, a, a startup, which in a way enabled the OCD because I wasn't reporting to anyone else. So I could indulge my OCD in a way that I couldn't have if I had to, you know, report to, to if I had a boss or something like that. Like I could, I was going into work every day, but when I was at my computer, you know, there were days where I was just, I was just obsessing, obsessing, obsessing and not doing any work and I could, you know, get away with it. Um, but there was a high cost there and socially, you know, I was increasingly isolating, not because I didn't want to be around people. And we haven't talked about my specific symptoms, but it was mostly um, around decision making, you know, making a decision, reversing the decision, going back and forth and back and forth for hours, even over very, very trivial choices, engaging in my obsessions, figuring things out, obsessing over what MP3 player to get, what shirt to wear, whatever the, the decision du jour was. And there were hundreds of them a day. So, I couldn't, I couldn't figure things out if I was with other people. So I was increasingly isolating and just going deeper and deeper into this, you know, OCD fantasy land or nightmare land. This is all happening in your what, late twenties, early thirties? This was, yeah. So the OCD really started taking off when I was 29. At this point, it was, my life was basically going to work, trying to do some work if I could, coming home and obsessing. And, you know, being late to work because I was obsessing and maintaining friendships. You know, I wasn't totally isolated, but, but, but yeah, less and less. It really felt like I was, yeah, drifting, drifting away from the world and drifting deeper and deeper into my own, my own head. And it's sort of like, does your family know your friends or is this sort of, they're kind of aware of it, but it's basically between you and your therapist trying to figure it out? Is, is that yeah, sort of thing? Yeah, it was, I, I really kept people out. People were aware that I was struggling. And again, this was not a new thing. So it wasn't new for me to be in a state of, of deep distress to the point that my functioning was, you know, impaired. So friends and family, you know, that's who I was. That was part of my, unfortunately, part of my uh, identity. So it wasn't like people thought everything was fine with Adam. But this new wrinkle of OCD was something that I very much didn't want to let people into because I had so much shame around it. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. (laughs) 
When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep tight stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Tell me about then how this show emerges. And I think the first time you perform The Mushroom Cure, the show, is what, about 10 years ago or so? Yeah, yeah. You know, having seen it, and I, you know, now I see it live four years ago in Berkeley, I mean, it's incredibly funny and touching. And you're obviously a talented comic, you know, in addition to being a good actor as well. How did that come about? How did you think to do it that way? And, and how does it differ now for, or even a few years ago, from what you originally conceived it as? Yeah. So I never had any ambition to do a solo show show or to be an actor. I started doing stand-up as the OCD was really getting worse and worse. Uh, And I actually look at stand-up in some ways as an attempt, not conscious at the time, but an attempt to, to get love and connection that I was too kind of afraid, too vulnerable to get in the form of an intimate relationship because this heartbreak had, I don't want to say caused the OCD, but precipitated it. So I was increasingly isolated and I was very lonely. And it's, you know, when you tell people you're a comedian, they'll often say, oh, that's brave. But I think for me, it took less bravery to get on stage 
and try to get laughs from an audience and get love and connection and approval that way than it would have taken at that point in my life to be in another intimate relationship. And so I pretty much just started doing stand-up and the OCD was getting worse and worse and I you know, was trying everything. So in addition to the SSRIs and the therapy, I did all the alternative and holistic treatments, acupuncture, herbs, um, you know, all this stuff, hypnotism, hypnotherapy, nothing was helping. And I stumbled across this study out of the University of Arizona of psilocybin for OCD. And it was a very small study. It's uh, only nine subjects. And to date, still the only published study of any psychedelic for OCD, though fortunately there are three or four new ones and, and much bigger ones in the works right now. This is the one by, uh, is, it, is it Francisco Moreno? Is that yes, the yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Safety, efficacy, and tolerability of psilocybin in nine patients with OCD. It's a very long title. You know, and I had essentially no psychedelic experience. I had tried psychedelics, but they hadn't worked for me probably in hindsight because I was on SSRIs. So I saw this study. And what's interesting about this study is it wasn't the sort of studies they're doing now of like, you know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. There wasn't much of a therapy component. They were basically giving people psilocybin at different doses. And there also wasn't long-term follow-up. But the results were very encouraging. All the subjects had, you know, significant remission, some just for a short period of time. But they were they were getting results and results that, you know, I hadn't seen with any of the treatments I'd found. And so even though I had very little psychedelic experience, there was this sense of, well, what do I have to lose by trying this stuff? So that that set me off on my quest to cure my OCD with psychedelics. The the period of time I recount in the mushroom cure is 2007 to 2010 by which point you know I'd, I'd gotten a lot of healing i'd gotten a lot of recovery and there was a sense of i need to share this story because the story itself is the most incredible story that's ever happened to me i'm not saying the show is incredible the sh- people may like or not like the show but the actual events that unfolded the coincidences the people i met were to me just uh, amazing and inspiring for me. And I felt incredibly lucky that I'd gone through these experiences and suffice to say, you know, it's, it wasn't a smooth journey. I was trying to cure my OCD with psychedelics uh, with, you know, in a pretty uncontrolled fashion, doing a lot of different psychedelics at high doses and uh, fairly frequently. So there were some harrowing experiences yet somehow in a way, Everything seemed to come together to give me, this is that psychedelic cliche, but I think it's often an apt one, to give me not what I wanted, but what I needed in some way. I felt like I'd really been given this tremendous gift, and I wanted to share this story, one, because I thought it could help people, but two, just because I was like, this is a great fucking story. I don't know if I can tell it well, but I know the story itself is worthy of being shared. So I started trying to talk about it in comedy clubs, but it quickly became apparent that there was just too much narrative here. It's not the sort of thing where it is, you know, the show is funny, but it's not a punchline every 20 seconds. So I had no experience with theater. I'd never studied acting. I'd I'd barely even seen plays, but it was obvious that that would be the correct forum for it. So I, um, 
I decided to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2012, and that's where the show had its premiere. Well, Adam, I have, I have yeah. to ask you about, I think I was listening to you being interviewed on somebody else's podcast or something, um, uh, and you mentioned a relationship with Hamilton Morris, a- another one of my guests who was on a few months ago, yeah, you know, who's yeah. just, you know, this wonderful psychedelic researcher, yeah. and he had his uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopeia TV show, which was broadly watched. I think you said that he was a comic. Yes, he we we met. He had a he had a sort of brief involvement in the uh, in the comedy scene, and that's how we met initially. And he he was part of the he was part of this early story for me. He was a, a close and is a close friend, and was someone who, um, even though he's significantly younger than me and was a lot younger then, was already. I was going to say dipping his toe into the psychedelic waters, but more than dipping his toe was clearly, you know, fascinated by psychedelics, you know, had a lot of insight on them and um, just knew a lot more than I did. So we struck up a close friendship and part of that friendship was uh, exploring these compounds and talking about our experiences and supporting each other in our in our in our respective journeys. Well, Adam, I'll say I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but there's a moment in the play where you're talking about meeting a friend and he's giving you all this information about these white powders from China and these other things you should try in which doses and the voice you give your friend sounds remarkably like Hamilton Morris. It's it's not a coincidence and I'm okay saying this because I've asked Hamilton's permission. That uh-huh. was Hamilton I'm depicting in the show. So everything in the show is true. Um, even characters' names, but I did change Hamilton's name to Harrison simply because there's a reference in the show to Hamilton the musical, yes. and it got confusing. So <laughs> I mean, now it sort of makes a little bit of sense. He's got such a dry kind of tone about him. He he is at heart a scientist. You know, he had this TV show, which is a great show and entertaining, and he's funny and he is entertaining. But the thing that really inspires him so far as I can tell, is not being a public figure, is not being in the limelight, limelight, but being in the lab. His ambition was to get in there in the lab and tinker with, tinker with these compounds and learn more about these molecules and ultimately human consciousness. Mm-hmm. So uh, my motivation ultimately was to cure my OCD, but I'd be lying if I said a big part of it wasn't also just this deep curiosity about these totally unique mental and emotional states and, and how these compounds interact with the human nervous system. Uh-huh. You know, you reference in the play, I think, uh, Sasha Shulgin, you know, and his various, um, what is it, stages of, of how high you are on a psychedelic, you know. The from, Shulgin think, scale. The, right. the Shulgin scale, and where plus four is the big transcendental one, and pl- plus one is basically maybe a microdose a little more, and plus two is maybe museum level. Um, so had you read Shulgin early on, or sort of, did you sort of become aware of it as you're uncovering stuff around uh, psilocybin in the, you know, 15 years ago, whatever. Yeah, no, that, that was Hamilton's doing. He, he's the one who turned me on to, uh, to Shulgin. And I, you know, I devoured P-Call, uh, T-Call. They're, they're great, unique books. You know, they're these weird combination of like psychedelic recipe books, autobiography, a love story, meditations on the nature of consciousness and love and sex. And um, so, yeah, those books really were, were mind expanding for me. Well, the person who looms largest in the show and in your story is a girlfriend who you call, I imagine, a pseudonym of Grace. Actually, that's not a pseudonym, but it's, it's, her, not, I, it's not her first name. I'll just leave it at that, but that's not it. Okay. That, that, that is what I called her in, in real life. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, do you think that your journey would have happened if you had not met Grace? 
I don't know. And this is one of the coincidences I alluded to earlier. So without giving away too much of the show, I'd read this study, this Moreno study out of the University of Arizona, and I'd resolved that, okay, I need to try psychedelics because nothing else is working. And it was very soon after I read that study that I met this woman at, at a comedy show in Times Square, of all places, the middle of New York, the most anonymous you know, fishbowl in the, in the Western Hemisphere, perhaps, for people meeting. And we struck up a relationship and it turned out, I didn't learn this until, you know, we'd been dating for a little bit, that she had essentially cured her clinical debilitating suicidal depression with mescaline containing cacti. And so it was this shocking coincidence that, you know, this person who I'd met seemingly randomly had actually done in a sense the thing I was trying to do and had a lot of relevant experience. So that was instrumental, I think, in two ways. One, she became sort of my my unofficial guide on a lot of these journeys. Two, there was this sense and there is this sense of coincidence that um, with psychedelics that sometimes, I don't know what coincidences mean, and I'm open to the fact they're meaningless, but it often feels to me like there is meaning. And one way I like to look at coincidence is kind of keep going, kind of a, a, a green flag from, from the universe. Like, okay, you're, I don't even want to say on the right path because right or wrong, I think is a slippery slope, but you're on a path. And so I took it even at the time when she revealed to me that, oh, she not only, you know, did she have some experience with psychedelics, but she'd actually affected great healing herself with them that, okay, I, I'm on the right path here. And absent that, I don't know. I don't know if I would have embarked on this journey. You know, there's other research going on now with ketamine and OCD, and obviously there's research going on with psilocybin. Um, so it does appear that maybe multiple of these, I don't know if there's anything with MDMA and OCD, but it does appear that there's numerous of these psychedelics that could potentially work with a condition. And there's a funny scene in your in your um, play where you're talking about your marijuana dealer uh, trying to say, I can't get any mushrooms, you know, there's a, a shortage, but how about some ketamine? And you react, no, 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 I, I, need, I, need, I need mushrooms. But if, in fact, that, that marijuana dealer friend of yours had been able to come up with ketamine, it makes me wonder whether that might have also helped facilitate a, a bit of a breakthrough. One of the things that characterize OCD is a, is a very sort of rigid black and white way of thinking. And for me, in this context, it manifested as, well, the study was, was mushrooms, so therefore I need mushrooms and I'm not interested in anything else. Ultimately, through Hamilton and other channels, I did do a lot of other things, you know, probably two dozen different, you know, Shulkin invention, research chemicals, mescaline containing cacti through grace, LSD. But at that point, I was very hell-bent on mushrooms are going to fix me. Uh, so I wasn't open to that. But I have subsequently worked with ketamine. And, and <laughs> I've been talking about this on stage. I love how with psychedelics, they're, they're the only drug where you can say worked with, you know, no one's ever like, yeah, I've been working with crystal meth, you know, do, doing right. a lot of work with cocaine. <laughs> You're doing the work with a capital T and a capital W, right? When you work right. It's stuff. this exalted yeah. thing. But, you yeah. know, again, I think, th I think there is something to that. I think that it is, it is work. Uh, it, it can be heavy, hard work with psychedelics in a way. It hasn't been, you know, smoking a joint or I haven't done cocaine since, you know, I was 19, but doing a line of blow doesn't feel like work in the same way. Well, you know, you also had, you had there was this phrase you came up with, which I loved. I think it was to describe your adventuring with all these chemicals um, that, that Hamilton and others had told you about. You said you were engaging in vigilante psychotherapy. <laughs> Right. So, Vigil yeah. Vigilante psychopharmacology. Psychopharmacology, yeah. <laughs> yes. And it really was that, right? I mean, you were out there trying anything to try to take it into your own hands. The 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 timing of the play and the way you build up, because I mean, for me, the per point 
when this morning I'm watching it and I'm bursting out laughing is when you get to the point of, you know, actually being in a full blown plus four experience, <laughs> you know, on the psilocybin mushrooms. And tell me if I'm giving much too, too much away, then we can always cut it out in the editing. Um, and then you call 911, right? Yes. You know, thereby yeah. cutting off your, you know, full blown experience. Um, but it does seem that, th that that really is a pivotal moment in your life when that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I had over the course of that 2007 to 2010 period, I probably had, I don't know, I'm going to say 60 psychedelic experiences, a lot of psychedelic experiences. So in the show, I only talk about a handful of them and I do highlight that one psilocybin mushroom trip as kind of this climax because it was a, a powerful trip and also a you know from a dramatic drama theater perspective <laughs> good fodder because i did call 911 on myself and there there is a transcript of it and it's accurate i start the call starts out with me asking the 911 operator if uh, if she's god and that is why i called 911 i want to be clear as i say in the show i, I don't call 911 because i wanted the cops to come to my house i called because i had some burning existential questions and no one else was picking up their phone and what had happened was I had thrown my cell phone away in the woods. I don't remember why, but I'd thrown it away in the woods. We subsequently recovered it. There was a landline at the house I was staying at, but I couldn't remember any numbers. I remember my childhood phone number, which I called. No one picked that up, thankfully. I remembered uh, I called zero, the old operator number. No one picked that up. And finally, I called 911 because I was consumed with this question of... Um, yeah, of, of divinity, of higher power, of, of what is God, because on this master dose of mushrooms, there's a clear sense of, all right, there's, there's some order intelligence here, uh, but what is it? And so the operator asked me where I was for the address, and I had enough presence of mind to not tell her, but I was calling from a landline, and they, they traced the call, and they showed up at, uh, at the house with a bunch of cops well, and Adam, paramedics. You, you thereby violated you know, <laughs> the number one rule of when one takes too much you know, uh, marijuana, uh, or one does a, an intense psychological trip, which is never call 911. <laughs> and of course, now there is fortunately something called the Fireside Project out there, which is for people who are having a psychedelic emergency or just want to process what's going on. I had one of the key founders of that project, uh, Hanif Onaya Washington, on oh, yeah. Psychoactive some months ago. But uh, you know, hopefully, if this ever happens to you again, Adam, you can call Fireside Project <laughs> yeah. rather than calling 911. <laughs> Definitely a better choice. So... That trip was pivotal, but I also should say the recovery I got, thanks to psychedelics, it wasn't so much one experience. It was a handful of particularly important experiences that really, the simplest way I could put it is, sometimes I think of OCD this way. It's like the brain or the mind is trying to fix a problem, a quote unquote problem in the body. And I put it in quotes because it's not really a problem, but the supposed problem is these emotions, which are just physical sensations that we don't want to experience, principally fear. So the mind of the OCD person is like, well, if I can get everything right, if I can figure everything out, then the fear will go away. And of course it doesn't work. So freedom from OCD for me has actually come from really just connecting to my body more than anything else. And I understood this, I should say, intellectually before I began working with psychedelics because I had done so much work in therapy. And the, the standard therapy for OCD, cognitive behavioral therapy, and particularly exposure and response prevention, is really geared towards acceptance or surrender. So the idea is 
since OCD is trying to neutralize these unwanted emotions, these unwanted physical sensations, if you can accept those sensations instead of trying to get rid of them, then you're basically taking the wind out of OCD sails. You're depriving it of its, of its reason for being. And so therefore, this therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, is really about acceptance or surrender. And I understood this intellectually. And so I would be going through OCD and I'd be saying to myself, okay, just accept the anxiety, accept the anxiety. But I was just saying it to myself, a conversation I was having in my brain where actual acceptance happens at a physical level. These emotions exist in the body and they have to be accepted in the body, but I just had no access to my physical experience. So the first time, even though I'd done years of therapy geared towards acceptance, the first time I actually was able to do acceptance viscerally, physically, was on psychedelics. I had an experience, which isn't isn't explicitly in the show, but it's it's sort of part of a number of trips I recount, where I was experiencing OCD, I was obsessing, and if I weren't on psychedelics, I would have just thought about it more, tried to figure it out harder in my head. But the psilocybin, it connected me deeply to my body, and I could actually really feel that fear in my body. In fact, I couldn't help not feel it. I had to feel it. It was so present. And because I'd been exposed to cognitive behavioral therapy, there was little sort of light bulb moment where it was like, oh, this is what my therapist has been talking about all these years. Instead of running from this sensation, since I can finally feel it clearly, let me really go into it and just open up to it fully. And when I did that, the obsessive thoughts just kind of quieted down. And the feeling was still there. It was unpleasant. This isn't a story of like, oh yeah, if you accept it, you know, it's transmuted into love and light and joy and bliss. I do believe that happens sometimes, but certainly not routinely. It was like, okay, if I accept the sensation, guess what? I have to feel this shitty sensation I don't have to feel. But the upside is it undercuts the OCD. I'm no longer obsessing. And the other thing is, it's not like OCD prevents me from feeling it. I'm still feeling it at some level. I'm just trying to shut it out. So once I had that experience on psychedelics, on that trip and then many other trips, gradually I learned how to do that when I wasn't tripping, how to really tune into my physical experience and open up to these unwanted mm -hmm. fear sensations and find freedom that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was Googling around uh, just you know before our conversation here, and I came across one of the co-founders of one of the psychedelics uh, venture funds uh, was being asked what he's excited about. And he referenced this study at Yale on uh, uh, psilocybin and OCD. But one of the things he said is he goes, there appears to be little to no psychotherapy needed as severe manifestations of OCD appear to be more like a motor disorder than one with a psychological underpinning. But on the other hand, you know, we typically hear all about psychedelics uh, you know, being most dramatically more valuable and safer to be doing it with psychotherapy. And in your own personal experience, you seem to talk about that. I mean, have you heard about this outcome of the Yale study or what's your sense about that, that reported finding? No, I'd not. I'm aware of the study, and I know I, I know uh, one a researcher who was involved, and then had a career change. Um, but I didn't know I didn't know that specific uh, finding. I know it hasn't been published yet. But that man, that that resonates with my experience in a way that I, I've not heard other people talk about. Which is yes. So I just I just kind of elucidated this whole idea about for me, so much of it was the physical 
experiencing piece of psychedelics. And let me go into that a little bit more. I have not found insight to be particularly useful from psychedelics insofar as OCD. I've certainly had insights that have been helpful in my life, but it wasn't like it wasn't like these revelations that helped me from psychedelics with OCD. It wasn't like uh, this, you know, changing my self-perception. It was very concretely this connecting me to my body. And once I'm in my body, I have the choice. It's not going to happen automatically, but at least I have the option or ability to accept my emotions in a way I otherwise don't and thereby gain freedom from them. So that accords what you just read. That accords with my experience where it's not so much... It's not something that you're talking through. It's something that you're experiencing. So that's very cool. I'm 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 glad you shared that well, with me. Well, let me ask you this too. I mean, one of the really funny moments in the play is when you talk about going to see your therapist. Like, what was the name? Doctor Wilson. It? Wilson. Christopher Will, Will, Wilson. Call him Doctor Wilson. There. I, um, I did change his last name. So yes, uh-huh, that was. A- uh-huh. <laughs> but you know, you're kind of you know riffing on him, and you're kind of making fun of him and his degrees. But you know, he's pushing you um, to try to have a new approach to this and to get out of your head and your intellectual understanding, which is only going to go so far, even though that's the way he's communicating to you. But he's suggest to you that basically your OCD is like an addiction. And just as there is Narconics addiction, uh, Narconics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous for addiction, that you should go to OC, Obsessive Compulsive Anonymous. And you tell this story of going, and it's very funny because you're kind of, you know, looking at all the skin pickers and the hair pullers and the hand washers, and what are you still doing here if it's all working? Yet, on the other hand, you kind of land up by saying this actually plays an important role, that for you, maybe it was less about combining uh, psilocybin with uh, psychotherapy and more about combining psilocybin with what you learned by going through a sort of 12-step approach. Yeah. And I think all three of those components, psilocybin, and I'd say not just psilocybin. I mean, the show is The Mushroom Cure because it was inspired by that study of psilocybin. And that's what I was you know, hell-bent on getting. But ultimately, mushrooms were very helpful, but LSD was helpful. Research chemicals were helpful. More recently, I found ayahuasca to be helpful. So psychedelics, certainly one component, generally speaking. Psychotherapy, helpful in the sense that it introduced me to this concept of acceptance, but in psychotherapy, it was just a concept for me. It wasn't a practice until I brought psychedelics into the picture. And then, yeah, the 12-step thing, very powerful and something that I still uh, I still am involved in because, well, I think there's a few components. Um, one is there is something very healing about peer support and commiseration. There's a lot of people getting help from a therapist one-on-one, but the group peer support aspect is powerful. One, because it's not just about getting support from other people with OCD, but giving support. The concept of service, which is a central concept in 12-step programs, is so powerful for me because with OCD and addiction generally, you know, you're very consumed with your own safety, your own happiness, your own comfort. And just trying to do things for other people, even if it's just going through the motions, it does, at least for me, it gets me out of my own head. And that gets me out of OCD because OCD only exists in my own head. So that's part of the 12-step thing that was helpful for me. And what the 12-step thing brings in that I personally have found helpful is this idea of more of a cosmic surrender. Whereas psychotherapy, CBT, it's like, all right, acceptance is allowing these emotions to be there. With the 12-step thing, there's this idea of a higher power, which is a concept that you know I'm not even going to try to touch on because it's something I certainly have no clarity on. And frankly, people who have a lot of clarity on that sometimes scare me. But this idea of 
the idea that I'm not in control. Whether or not I believe, you know, that the universe is run by by God or by uh, nature, one thing that I can get behind is this idea that I'm not in control, and this idea of letting things go, of turning things over, even if I don't know what I'm turning them over to, I found and find helpful is just that reminder coming back to and this idea of powerlessness. That's a very powerful concept, and powerlessness in the context of OCD, the way I look at it is I'm not powerless over my actions. I have a choice about whether to accept my anxiety or try to get rid of it by engaging in OCD. I have a choice of whether I'm going to engage in obsessive thinking and rituals. But where I am powerless is I can't choose the sensations in my body and I can't choose the thoughts that come into my mind. OCD is about trying to control those sensations and those thoughts. If I do the ritual right, if I think the correct thought, then the sensations or thoughts will change. And if you really buy into the 12-step thing, what you're saying is, no, I actually am powerless over those thoughts when they arise, when they go. And if you accept that, paradoxically, there's a great deal of freedom because you're saying, okay, I can't control my thoughts and experiences, so I can just kind of let it go. So, Adam, and, yeah. just, just to concretize it, I mean, so when I think about some of the um, the ping-ponging that you do in this show, you know, uh, which side of the street to walk on, the sunny side or the shady side, uh, you know, which uh, iPhone or, or uh, MP3 player to buy, which shirt to wear to a performance, whatever. But just say to take the one about walking down the street and whether to go to the sunny side or the shady side. So, now being more liberated from your OCD or having it subsided so it's no longer such a controlling thing. What does that mean when you talk about the surrender or powerlessness, that you're walking down the street, that you feel this consciousness of, should I go on the other side and back and forth happening, but that you just sort of accept that you're going to have this feeling in your body, but you'll just stick with where you are? So, In the show, I talk about a lot of these sort of daily OCD things, what to wear, what side of the street to walk down. So when I started to get real recovery from OCD, those daily smaller forms of OCD, those went away entirely. So I don't have that anymore, what side of the street to walk down. Initially, though, when I started to recover, it was exactly as you described. I'm walking down this side of the street, and I'm going to keep walking down this side of the street, even though now my mind is telling me, I should cross to the other side of the street because the other side is sunny and I need sunshine. I'm just going to keep walking on the shady side and I'm going to really open up to the discomfort and anxiety. And once I did that, you know, a number of times that anxiety, uh, it just went away where it flares up now is more in novel decisions, decisions I don't encounter that often and bigger ones. So decisions often about, career stuff. Uh, Should I do uh, a tour of the show in this city or that city? That sort of thing. And there, it's the same thing. It's okay. I'm experiencing this anxiety. My mind is telling me I have to think about this more and I have to figure out the perfect answer. I know rationally I'm not going to find a perfect answer. I know rationally that the more I think about it, the more confused I get, the more fearful I'm going to get, and the harder it's going to be to make a decision. But but yet, I really do still want to keep thinking about it because I don't want to feel this discomfort right now. So let me just really try to open up the discomfort as best as I can. And in a way, it really comes down to how quickly am I willing to take the hit? Because I'm going to, you know, when I have anxiety about a decision, 
there's going to be a moment where I'm going to have to fully experience that anxiety if I want to get past it. And I'd love to say that, you know, I just accept and surrender instantly, but I don't, I can still, I can still go down that rabbit hole a little bit, but yeah, to get that freedom is, it's the same thing as when I was walking down the streets. It's just really opening up at a physical level, uh, experiencing it. And I should be clear, it's not necessarily a one-time thing. If it's like a big decision, I might have to do that 30 or 40 times a day and it may come up and keep popping up for days on end. And it's going to be part of my experience and it's going to be unpleasant and it's going to cause a degree of suffering. But the more I'm willing to accept, the less suffering and the more freedom I, I find. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents. If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations... Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was... And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. 
I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You've mentioned how the length of the show has been reduced from about, you know, an hour, two hours to about 80 minutes or so. And obviously that involved telling less of the, uh, you know, fewer anecdotes about your drug experiences. But were there ways in which the show evolved as your insights into OCD and your condition uh, changed during the time since you started the show? The show certainly evolved a lot, but I would say it was less as a result of my journey with OCD and psychedelics because, I mean, that journey wasn't complete in 2012 when I started doing the show, and it's still, it's ongoing for me as well. But, you know, all the events I recount were finished by about 2010. So really, the evolution is more the evolution of me as a performer and and writer and creator. So when I did the show, First in Edinburgh in 2012, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, pretty much nothing can be longer than an hour. Generally. I mean, you can, but it's very hard to draw audiences. So the show is an hour, and it got a you know a strong critical response, reviews, and it, people you know it got a very positive response. But I came away from the festival feeling like ah, there's so much important stuff I'm leaving out that I didn't find it totally fulfilling sharing the show because I do have this. <laughs> Perhaps some would say an obsession with truth. Like I really, I don't embellish things in the show. I don't, it's it's all truthful, but it felt to me like there were so many omissions that I wasn't fully capturing the truth. And so after Edinburgh, I was like, you know, I, yeah, I think I've told this story and I'm done with it. And I started working on other projects, but I kept wanting to come back to the show. I kept wanting to come back to this story. So then I decided, you know what? Forget any time limits. Why don't you just figure out how to tell the story in the way that feels most truthful to you and length be damned. And so I started doing that and it got longer and longer. And so when I was doing the New York Fringe Festival in 2014, it was over two hours long. And and it was just me sitting at a desk because I remember I had no acting experience. I had no background in theater. So for me, it was really about the story and it was me sitting at a desk telling the story. And it still got a, a very strong reception, um, but there was a feeling that there was a feeling that it still hadn't assumed its final form. And so then I began working with a director for the first time, uh, who I still work with. His name is Jonathan Libman, really just brilliant, brilliant theater director. And he introduced me to the language of theater, by which I mean he would say things like, "Well, instead of spending four minutes telling this story, you can act it out." in 25 seconds if you get up from behind your desk and walk over here and we change the lights and you know that that sort of thing so that was and is been a very fruitful uh relationship where we've now brought to the show gradually more of these theatrical elements but shortening the show has come down to yes cutting recounting some of the drug experiences uh, and some other experiences but also in some ways, substituting um, minutes of words with a few seconds of gesture or lighting or movement. And that's that's allowed the mm -hmm. show to assume its current form. I'm curious, do other drugs, I mean, not psychedelic drugs, but things like cannabis or alcohol, do you use those? And do they play into your experience of OCD in any way? 
I don't use alcohol. Uh, I have nothing against alcohol. It's just I, I I don't like I don't like alcohol hangovers. So that's mm-hmm. that's uh, not something I use. I, I do not work with alcohol. I'm not working with <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> uh, f- cannabis, yeah, cannabis can be a double edged sword. Um, I do I like cannabis. I'd say I generally smoke cannabis probably like once a week on average. I find it can be helpful creatively. It can give me insight and perspective that's different from my sober mind, and that can help creatively in terms of you know my work, shows, uh, comedy, writing, but also in terms of like looking at relationships in my life in a different light. Where cannabis can be quite helpful, it for me at least, it can promote empathy. It can promote me really kind of seeing, oh, I, I didn't realize, but this person is doing this because it's probably because they have this trauma and I didn't connect the dots. And sometimes it's like, I might not even be right about my interpretation, but the interpretation itself leads to more compassion and that that helps um, open things up in how mm-hmm. I'm going to respond to that relationship. Uh, On the other I, hand, I will say cannabis, sometimes I have found, you know, I, I tend to like kind of speedy sativas and that can lead to more racing thoughts and more. So there have been times where I've had like, uh, I found myself kind of, yeah, starting to obsess uh, on cannabis in a way where I feel like the cannabis is um, is potentiating the obsession. Mm-hmm. Was ayahuasca, your experience with ayahuasca, so distinctive um, in any way from all the other ones, all the other psychedelic experiences? <sighs> I'd say it's a matter of degree in that we talked about this sort of, and it sounds like for you as well, with psilocybin containing mushrooms, so much of it is this very just deep, concrete, physical experience. And ayahuasca, I find even more so a physical experience for me. So I really, I don't get like immersive visions on ayahuasca. I don't get much insight and maybe that's because I've already done so many psychedelics. Maybe I've kind of plucked the low-hanging insight fruit from the psychedelic mm-hmm. tree already. But the physical experience of ayahuasca, it really, really just grounding me in my bo- grounding me in my body is um, I find it has that effect more so than any other psychedelic. So I, I did ayahuasca a bunch in New York, and then I went down to Peru. And in Peru, I did. I think I did 10 ceremonies in 16 nights, which oh, I don't boy. know if I necessarily <laughs> recommend it, but it was uh, w- one effect of this is uh, I discovered I had feet. I mean, I knew intellectually I had feet, but I had never really had a deep awareness of the sensations coming from my feet until I think it was after my eighth ayahuasca ceremony. And I'm walking into like the, you know, dining hall at this uh, retreat center. Maybe it was the Maloka, the ceremonial space, but I was walking into one, a space that had these very rough hewn wood plank floors. And I became acutely aware of the, you know, minute gradations of pressure and temperature on my feet. And it sounds trivial, but that has been a significant thing for me that has stayed with me. That was four years ago, five years ago, and I still have this sort of baseline awareness of the sensations in my feet that is quite literally grounding for me. And it's those sort of experiences that I've had on ayahuasca that I've not had on any other psychedelic. It's interesting, and I'll tell you, you're, you're reminding me on my very first MDMA experience, which was in my 
early 30s. And one of the things I remember was all of a sudden being conscious how much I carried most of my energy and my, my, my body consciousness in my torso and how much they were. I did not feel grounded. And under the, under the MDMA experience, I felt myself becoming more grounded, my feet hitting you know on the ground, and it felt like a better place to be. But it was, I say, the first time I've had that consciousness. And it, you know, I am able to re- come back at certain points to that consciousness, which I think has been has been helpful. But let you know, let me let me go back to something again. So in these gatherings, right? So you're you're entering in this world. I mean, you're going to obsessive compulsive anonymous, right? You're uh, presumably mm-hmm. talking about this. I mean, I imagine because of your work, you're being invited to conferences about obsessive compulsiveness. You're meeting large numbers of people who experience and live with OCD. I'm wondering about what's the reaction to them um, when they hear about your experience, and because I, I mean, it must, in some respects, in a way, you're sort of almost spreading the word about a cure. And I'm wondering also not what is it now, but also how has it evolved? I mean, I can I well imagine ten years ago when the whole notion of having a mushroom cure for OCD sounded way out there, as opposed to now when the magic of psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance is all in the news, that there's a different reaction. But just describe a bit some of the response if you got in from people living with OCD, whether it's in the 12-step programs or elsewhere. I have not talked about this explicitly in 12-step meetings because in the 12-step framework, one of the guidelines is you don't talk about outside treatment. So people won't talk about SSRIs. You know, It's really focused on this 12-step approach. Mm-hmm. But certainly, I've spoken you know, widely at conferences and podcasts like this. And yeah, I, you know, I think there's a selection bias in that the people who reach out to me are people who are open to this. I'm sure there are people who are not open to this and may, may be put off by the idea of using psychedelics for OCD, but I get a lot of uh, you know emails and messages on social media from people who are essentially saying, yeah, I, I want to do what you did. You know, wh- wh- what do you suggest? And the fact that I get so many people reaching out to me, I think reflects the fact that there are so many people out there with OCD who are just not being sufficiently helped with with standard treatments. And this is not to take anything away from, you know, it's a lot of very committed, very compassionate, very talented OCD therapists uh, out there who are doing great work. And again, therapy can be life-changing for some people. And for that matter, SSRIs can be life-changing for some people, but for many people, the existing remedies just aren't aren't enough. And that's one of the things that I find that really upsets me about the fact that this Moreno study was published in the study I read of psilocybin for was published in December 2006. We're 16 years, uh, almost 16 years later, and there hasn't been a single follow-up study published, though again, that will change very soon, thankfully. But meanwhile... of the population is estimated to suffer from OCD. People with OCD have 10 times the suicide rate of the general population. Like This is a huge societal, uh, worldwide problem. And yet, in my mind, the most promising new treatment that's come along in decades, maybe ever, there's been almost no investigation of it, uh, though thankfully that is changing. So uh, that's all to say that the reactions I've gotten are generally from people who are desperate and because what they've tried hasn't helped, they're in the same shoes I was in and, and are looking for, uh, for guidance in, in working with psychedelics for their own healing. 
Well, hopefully we'll see an opening up of funding from the federal government, right? Because I think for a long time, they were only willing to provide money for ketamine research, dealing with OCD or addiction or conditions like that. And hopefully that's beginning to change because of the changes at the leadership, you know, National Institute of Health, National Institute of Drug Abuse. And obviously there's the private money um, coming into this at this time. So, you know, we can hope for some sort of a more significant breakthrough. But I'm also curious, Adam, do you consider OCD a form of addiction? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, the the hesitation of my original yes was because I have sometimes gotten a little bit of pushback on when I say OCD is an addiction as people who take issue with that because to them addiction has a negative connotation. And I get that it does have a negative connotation, but I don't mean it that way at all. I would define an addiction, broadly speaking, as a strategy to avoid or eliminate pain that works in the very short term, but then creates more pain. And at the beginning of our conversation, I talked about OCD in that context, but certainly let's look at alcohol. An alcoholic, when they drink, they often will feel a little bit better, but then they feel worse when it wears off and they feel worse because the consequences of their drinking are making their life you know, unsustainable. So what do they do? They drink more. So addictions are, and I also said earlier, I don't like the term mental illness. In some ways, I sometimes wonder if the model of addiction is not the best way to uh, describe all of what we call mental illnesses, if they're not all at some at some level, at some deep level, some sort of strategy to help us feel better, that ultimately makes us feel worse, which in turn drives more of that 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 behavior. So, in that mm-hmm. sense, I absolutely do think viewing OCD as an addiction is a helpful way to look at it. I do see a lot of people with OCD who try to fix themselves. And I think this is because to really get freedom from OCD requires you feeling the feelings you don't want to feel, and that's uncomfortable. So that's what I was trying to do. And if there are people with OCD listening to this, and I imagine there are, listen, I could be wrong, but what I can say, and I think I said this at the beginning, is I don't know anyone with OCD who's gotten better on their own. This is a condition that if you have real full-blown OCD, I believe that there is an element of powerlessness and um, help and support from outside your own brain is is essential. And I think calling it an addiction can drive that point home in a way that can hopefully be helpful for some people to hear. Mm -hmm. I've heard you make the point that comparing mental illness to physical illness, or for example, OCD to diabetes is just another illness. On the one hand, it's beneficial in that it can be destigmatizing, but on the other hand, it ignores the existential aspect of struggling with addiction or OCD or things like this. Yeah, that's part of my that's part of my uh, concern with the term mental illness. You, you summed it up perfectly. Is yeah, I don't mental illness. I like the fact that it's saying okay, this is something that you didn't choose any more than you chose, you know, to ha- to have cancer. It's not something that you know you you should be blamed for. But I don't like the fact that well, you know, the, it's really been the drug companies that have propagated this idea that, oh, this is, you know, the same way a diabetic takes insulin, someone with depression has low serotonin and needs to take an SSRI. First of all, at a neurochemical level, that's not true. We found that some people with depression seem to have lower than average serotonin. Some people seem to have higher than average serotonin. There's never been a clear correlation found with any mental illness and specific neurochemical state, though there are neuroanatomical differences, but whether those are a result or a cause is questionable. So that's one thing. But yeah, so much of what we now look at mental illness in, in other cultures and other times would have been seen as a spiritual malady or a spiritual challenge. And I think there can be something beautiful 
uh, and looking at it that way and something empowering, which is that, no, this isn't just some chemicals in your brain going haywire. To me, there, I believe there is a narrative around this. There is a story around this. There is a reason, which again, is not to say there's blame. It's not to say you're at fault, but that maybe this is one way to put it. I think a diabetic, um, you know, who, who's managing diabetes, I don't know if they're going to have a spiritual transformation from that. I don't know if they're going to have a, an existential epiphany, but I think these mental illnesses do have that potential. There is an opportunity in mental illness for growth, for transformation that I don't think exists with, say, diabetes, and I don't want to ignore that. Mm-hmm. So, Adam, in addition to doing this show off and on for many years now, you also started a new show called Adam Strauss is Not Unhappy, right? A sort of unscripted comedy. In fact, I'm I'm wondering, uh, the last time you and I crossed paths, I think, was in December in New York at the Horizons Conference. And then a friend of ours, Sarah Rose Siskine, has this comedy show called Drug Test she puts on downtown. And if I recall correctly, maybe you did a little element of that there. But what can you tell us about this new show? Why you're doing it, what it's about, what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, so I'm doing the Mushroom Cure every Friday at the Marsh Theater in Berkeley, and I'm doing Adam Stress is Not Unhappy every Saturday. And the reason I, I structured it that way is I want people to come to the Mushroom Cure who, who will then want to hopefully come to Adam Stress is Not Unhappy because it's otherwise a difficult show to market because it is unscripted. And in some way, I, I do have a lot of freedom from OCD, but I'm still someone who I'd say perhaps more than the average person like certainty. And in a way, doing an unscripted show is, it's an odd choice because there's radical uncertainty. I'm getting on stage, not really knowing what I'm going to say or how it's going to go. I mean, there's an element of improvisation in the Mushroom Cure, but it's it's mostly scripted. And it's this odd thing where I, I think part of my own path to freedom has been doing the things that feel the scariest. They take me the first, furthest outside of my comfort zone. And certainly psychedelics do that. I mean, that's part of why I think psychedelics do have unique uh, promise for OCD is, and not microdosing. For me, I think like doing high doses probably have unique promise for OCD because they are an exposure for the root fear that I think underlies all forms of OCD, which is loss of control. If you take a large dose of mushrooms, really what you're saying is I'm choosing to let go of control. I'm choosing to do the thing that my OCD least wants me to do. And this Adam Strauss is not unhappy show is really me doing that on stage, me going up and saying, okay, a big part of me wants to have perfect control, but another part of me wants more freedom. So I'm going to go up and see what happens when I just relinquish control to an extent that's very unusual, I think, in any sort of live performance. And it's been, um, at times, it's been pretty magical. You know, I've I've found moments and experiences and shared things on stage that I never would have scripted that have been, I think, a lot better than what I could have come up with. At times, it's felt pretty scary uh, being up there and not quite knowing where I'm going. But there's some part of me that feels this real pull towards these putting myself in these situations that force me to let go, that force me that that if I try to hold on tightly, it's 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 not going to work. And I would apply that to psychedelics because uh, certainly I had trips where I tried to control 
and you know i got uh i got my ass kicked essentially i had things got really scary and i learned with psychedelics that okay when things are really really intense when they're really really overwhelming it's the the way is not to hold on tighter the way is to let go more and listen it's very easy for me to say this with you right now uh, on this podcast sober uh, when I'm in that psychedelic space, it's still a scary choice, and it's not one I always make. But I am drawn to that choice because I feel like there's, there's uh, that's the way freedom lies, and that's that's what I'm going for in this show. Having said that, I also am. It is a show. It's not about you know my own therapy. So certainly the agenda is also to entertain people and connect with them at a deep level and make them laugh and make them think and make them feel and. Uh, yeah, it's it's something I very much enjoyed doing. And what about are there other shows out there that get into? You know, I remember one time being at one of the Maps uh, big conferences, and I think they had a whole series of comedians going up there doing some psychedelics relevant yeah. humor. And some of them were actually pretty good. But are there any other standout comics doing this kind of work, doing about you know riffing about psychedelics or their own experiences or things like that? Uh, let me be very clear here, Ethan. No. No one else okay. doing this is any good. No one should watch anyone else. <laughs> I, they all I was suck. They're all you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> You're setting me up. Uh, no, yeah, there are. It's you know when I when I was talking about this stuff in 2012, there really was no one else. Now there's a handful of people. I'm sure it'll be increasing as more and more people have psychedelic experience. But you know, some of my favorites, uh, Duncan Trussell, who doesn't do much live performance now, but is really brilliant. I mean, he showed the Midnight Gospel, which is not. Uh, not overtly psychedelic, but is just very psychedelic in tone. I mean, Duncan is, I, I think it's, I, I consider Duncan a genius in that he's just pushing boundaries of the form and someone who the psychedelic experience has, I think, been transformative and informative of his work. So he was at that that Maps Comedy Banquet, I think you're referring to in 2017. It was The lineup was him, uh, me, Shane Moss, who's also great. He has a show called A Good Trip, which is also great. So he he's wonderful. Uh, just, yeah, funny, insightful, vulnerable, all the stuff I love. Sarah Rose Susskind, she has not a show like a solo show, but she does this thing, Drug Test in New York, which always is great. Um, and I'm sure there's more people uh, out there who I'm not aware of. So I think it's clear that psychedelics are rapidly becoming a bigger part of the cultural consciousness. And I'm sure that's going to translate to Well, Adam, what we can comedy. say about you and the Mushroom Cure is that not only are you doing great comedy like all the others, but your thing is simultaneously dramatic and touching and proving to be therapeutic for people who watch it and ultimately, you know, come to some greater insight about what's going on in their own lives or people around them or how they might find their own cure. So with all that in mind, I want to thank you for joining me on Psychoactive and I look forward to crossing paths uh, hopefully soon and best of luck with both, you know, Mushroom Cure as well as with the new show. I hope it all works out really well. Thanks so much, Ethan. Yeah, really enjoyed chatting with you. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman, 
It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with David Simon, co-creator of The Wire, who has a new series, We Own This City, on HBO. He describes it as a sort of coda to The Wire. When I was covering the department in the late 80s, in, you know, into the 90s, it's not like every cop was great. You know, there were a lot of guys who were humps, and they, they, you know, they couldn't make a case to save their lives, but they were usually in squads with one or two guys who knew how to get a case through the courthouse. They had the skill set. I mean, you need to know how to work informants and not be worked by informants. You need to know how to testify in court without perjuring yourself. You need to know how to write a search and seizure warrant. You need to know how to use various forensic uh, tools that, that, that don't have any relation to the drug war. They're basically skill sets that don't have anything to do with drug prohibition. And those things died. They died on the vine. The, the drug war taught everybody how to not do police work and made for stupid generations of cops. And then those generations... Those, those guys are now the colonels and, and the majors. They're teaching the lieutenants the wrong metrics, and the lieutenants are teaching the, the guys on the street the wrong metrics. And, and the only thing that it cost us was police work in America. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. 
Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.